Welcome to You Haven't Heard the Half of It, where we uncover the hidden half of history. Telling you stories you haven't heard before, and some you have, but from a new perspective, we disrupt accepted versions of the past. I'm Esther Freeman, a social historian from East London. And I'm Simon Cole, an alternative tour guide from East London. Each episode, one of us will take you on a journey to show that you haven't heard the half of it. And remember, subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you like the show, please give us a rating and a review. So today's episode is a bit about uh, Jewish resistance in World War Two. Simon, how did you find that? It was really interesting for me because I've uh, tour guided in Poland a little bit, and so I knew a bit about it. But this has really fleshed things out, and I have to say I did find it quite an emotional listen because it did, rather than going just being a series of, of dry numbers and statistics, I felt like you really took us into the experience of those women, Esther, and again, I say this in the podcast, I'm so glad I wasn't there and didn't have to make the decisions they did. Yeah, and it is, there's some uh, difficult content in there, so the stories are quite harrowing, but I just, personally for me, I just found the telling of the uh, Jewish resistance fighters and how much agency they actually had is inspiring doesn't seem the right word because it's too tragic and awful to be inspiring but it gave me a sense of maybe hope is the right word that actually people are able to fight back and they they're just not passive victims um they're survivors and they did extraordinary things and i'm i'm very grateful now to have these stories as part of my consciousness yeah, yeah, me too. Let's hope we can all take away some inspiration from these women and in some way manifest some element of that because uh, there's a lot going on now that, that that needs our attention and we can maybe take something from them and manifest in our own lives. Yeah, brilliant. Let's Let's get stuck into the episode. Let's do it. For this episode, I've got a subject that I'm quite personally excited about because it links to my own heritage. I just want to give a little bit of background um, to this subject. I I should first of all tell you what we're going to be talking about is Jewish resistance during World War II. Um, And the reason I got interested in this is because of um, a brilliant podcast, which we've talked about in previous shows, um, the Underground Railway podcast, which is hosted by Makita Oliver and Desiree Birch. And it focuses on untold stories of resistance by enslaved people. And what I really liked about it was how it positioned them as, as active in their resistance and success rather than passive victims. And I was really moved by the stories and I really urge people to go and listen to the podcast because it's great. Um, And they talked at length about the importance of enslaved people being depicted as having agency and overcoming the harshest conditions and how these narratives are often hidden. Um, And the arguments that they make is that um, this has happened throughout history because it doesn't do to give people of colour the idea that maybe if they rise up, they can affect change. And as I was listening to this, I was just going, yes, yes, this really sort of all really resonated with me because I'm of Jewish heritage. And I always feel that um, the stories of 
my people um, is often set in um, the history of Jews being the passive victim, whether that is uh, the pogroms or the Holocaust. Um, but through my research on the project uh, East London Women Activists, I know that there are much more. Uh, there were all these Jewish women that I came across and there was much more to them than that and that they repeatedly shown themselves as basically badass Jewesses. Um, and so it made me question, like, why don't we hear these stories? Um, so all of this led me to a book which is sitting in front of us now and I know you've just been leafing through it, but it's called The Light of Days by uh, Judy Battalion. And I will put a link to that in the show notes. But... Um, the answer to this question about why do we not hear these stories, it wasn't quite as straightforward as I thought it was going to be. Um, and I'm going to like talk about some of the complexity of the situation and how it kind of gets tangled up in Jewish factions and survivor's guilt and also the position of women's narratives more generally. Um, so Simon, I just wondered, are there any stories of Jewish resistance you're familiar with? Yeah, I am actually, because I've tour guided in Poland. And for example, I've been to the Museum of the Warsaw uh, Uprising. So I've done a lot of reading around the subject. So I'm aware, for example, and you're probably going to talk about this, so I'll just be really brief, but the schism between one typically typically younger element that might say, look, they're, going, they're coming for us, we've got to rise up. Uh, and another faction, typically always, that might say, well, let's not let's not rush anything. Let's be a bit more shrewd and, and play the long game and then see where we we end up. So I'm, I know there's a lot to be discussed and I know it's going to be super interesting. So I'm really looking forward to this. Great. Yeah, we are going to touch on that. So we won't say anything more about it now. Let's not uh, spoil the... Uh, uh, any spoilers? <laughs> so um, for this episode, we are going to explore the stories of Jewish resistance during World War II and particularly focus on Poland and young people and women. And the the stories all come from Light of Days, which is the book I just talked about. There is another book that's been published recently called X Troop, uh, which is about a group of uh, secret Jewish commandos, some of whom graduated from the kinder transport and helped defeat the Nazis. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes too. But but right now, I just want to focus on this um, topic of women in the Jewish youth movements. So before I start, I want to just lay out my stall a bit um, on some of the language and themes that are going to come up. And some of them are a little bit contentious. So I'm going to stick with using the term girls rather than women, which I wouldn't normally do um, because it kind of infantilizes um, women. Um, but in um, Judy Battalion um, does say in her book that she uses the term girls um, and she makes the point that they really were terribly young. Um, and I think she kind of just wanted to draw attention to that. So on this occasion, I'm actually going to follow her lead. We're also going to be talking about careers, which is a role that many of these uh, women took on. Um, and some people have complained that this term undervalues what they did, because it does make them just sound like postal workers. And actually, their role was incredibly dangerous and pivotal in the resistance. Um, so Judy, Judy Battilion, um she decides to stick with that term and she her argument is that no one's really come up with anything better so again I'm just going to follow her lead on that 
And finally, I am going to talk about Zionists. And I've gone a bit back and forth on this one. Um, and I, I really don't want to detract from the stories with debates about Palestine. But at the same time, I did feel that while I was reading this book, that there was a paradox between people fighting in a group called Freedom, yet support the colonisation of a land inhabited by other people. But quite honestly, I'm just going to dodge that bullet um, and instead recommend people check out uh, Throughline, which is a podcast from NPR, which has an episode which is simply called Palestine. And it's brilliant. And it looks at the history of the region and the development of Zionism as a cultural and political ideology. It's super interesting, um, as is most of their podcasts. Um, so go and check them out. I'll put a link in the show notes. And now we're just going to get on with my story now I've put all that out there. So, um, Poland in the 1930s had a thriving Jewish culture. In Warsaw alone, there are 180 Jewish newspapers. There were prayer houses suited to the various different flavours of Judaism. There were Jewish bookstores, publishing houses, libraries, Jewish political parties and groups. Um, And this included Jewish youth groups such as Freedom. So there were reasons why there were so many youth groups and why they were so popular. The decade between the wars saw growing poverty and anti-Semitism and young Polish Jews felt alienated from their country and their future seemed really uncertain compared to the previous generation, which sounds pretty similar uh, to what's sort of going on at the moment with the intergenerational divide that we've got going on here. So... Jews were not allowed to join the Polish Scouts, um, so they formed their own youth groups, which were affiliated to different different political parties. Freedom was one of those groups, and it focused on charity, advocacy and pluralism. Um, They took Polish values of nationalism and heroism and personal sacrifice, but gave them a Jewish context. Um, They also established summer camps, training camps and communal farms, teaching hard labour and cooperative living. Controversially, and much to the parents' dismay, comrades were prioritised over the birth family, with leaders treated almost like a surrogate parent. So... Uh, This was going on during the 30s, and then in 1939, the young Freedom members spent the summer at camps where they danced and sang and studied and read and played sports and slept outside, and then just when they were settling back at home, um, on the 1st of September 1939, Hitler invaded Poland and everything changed. So they knew immediately that the Germans were after the Jews and as rumours flew, people packed their bags and began walking en masse from town to town alongside retreating columns of Polish soldiers. Those that remained hid and houses were looted and streets were burned. Um, So probably a lot of this uh, will sound quite familiar, but but we're going to get onto in a minute where the sort of narrative changes. So when the fighting died down, the Germans promised normalcy and no killings if people obeyed. And of course, we all know now where that ended up. For a while, life and work did resume, but hunger was already a feature of Jewish lives as food was already strictly rationed. Um, Despite the hardship, the Jewish youth movement kept on. In fact, they actually strengthened, redeploying and reforming their mission to meet the new needs of the community under the leadership of a courageous few, many of whom could have fled, didn't, and in some cases actually returned to the belly of the beast. So one such leader was uh, Zivia, 
And she was a shy and serious young woman and she was born in 1914 into a lower middle class family. Her parents wanted her to function comfortably in Polish society, so sent her to a Polish state elementary school, which is going to be quite, remember that, because it's going to come quite important later on, um, and I'll explain why. So Zivia was clever. She joined female comrades in the laundry or baking bread, but also tried her hand at traditional male trades like constructing railway lines. Uh, and this, I love this story. This is great. She once saw off a group of hooligans who'd been taunting comrades. A stick in her hand, she threatened them until they ran away. Um, she became known in freedom as the big sister. So when war broke out, Zivia had actually been in Geneva with fellow freedom leaders. So many found their way to flee Europe from Switzerland, but Zivia was not one of them. She decided to return to Poland, arriving back in Warsaw for the first day of Hitler's campaign. She began by helping comrades find escape routes, sustenance and comfort. And then on New Year's Eve 1939, Freedom held an all-night conference which effectively became their first underground meeting. Zivia said, quote, We ate, drank and made merry and in between drinks we discussed the movement and its future course. This next part of the story, do you know a bit about kind of Poland under occupation? Um, Poland under occupation, well I know there was the general government and I imagine... It was probably like France with a creeping system of controls so that rather than people instantly jumping up and saying they're going to come and kill us all, it was the the wedge slowly got thicker until by the time people realised what was going on, it was too late for a lot of them. Yeah, broadly. Yeah, so this is... uh... This is the half of the history you probably do know about. And then I'm going to go on to the bit where you don't know about. So, yeah, Jewish establishments were ordered to display a Jewish star on doors and windows, which Jews would be later required to wear on their clothes. Restrictions were imposed on the lives of Jewish people, including being forbidden to use public transport. And in April 1940, construction of a wall um, began around what would become the Jewish ghetto. And on uh, the 15th of November 1940, Germans closed the Warsaw Ghetto to the outside world, effectively imprisoning 400,000 Jews. This was around 30% of the general population, but in a geographical area that only covered 2.4% of the overall metropolitan uh, area. So it's a squash, basically. So these were obviously really terrible, terrible times. And you can only imagine what it was like to see those walls going up and the outside world disappear. Yet this is also when freedom really came into its own, displaying what would later become its famous determination and fortitude. These young people were not passive ghetto victims. On the contrary, freedom activists were holding cultural events and putting on satirical performances in coffee houses, all at great risk to their safety. There was even a Broadway on in the ghetto, which consisted of 30 performance venues on one street alone. Um, they opened soup kitchens, they organised camps, they had sports organisations and an underground medical facility. Um, The Germans closed all the Jewish schools, so Freedom established an underground elementary and high school system. They had 13 teachers uh, with no supplies or permanent classrooms, but they still managed to educate 120 students in both secular and Jewish subjects. And this work, what's really interesting about this, was that this work was largely run by women because Freedom 
organisation claimed more than a thousand female members. So I think I talked, you know, remember when we talked in the previous podcast about all those unnamed um, people that are part of our history that we never really know about. And I want to pay tribute to the unknown ghetto women and their small daily acts of resistance outside of the freedom movement. Um, and I've talked before in episodes about Stella Dadzi, who's a stalwart of the black feminist movement. And she discusses this in her recent book, A Kick in the Belly, which charts women's involvement in slave resistance. And she talks about how mere survival when those around you want you dead is an act of resistance. And that is something that was definitely happening in the Warsaw Ghetto. So there were like so many unknown women in that ghetto who were trained in domestic skills and who would spend their time cleaning, delousing, budgeting and apportioning food to ensure their families lived. And these all just sound very everyday things, but they were a matter of life and death when you're being pushed to the very edge. And I, I really think, you know, we've been a lot of discussions about statues recently. We could do worse than build one to all those unnamed heroes. There were also lots of very um, non-organised acts of resistance. Uh, One afternoon, the Nazis entered the ghetto and they ordered the Jewish women to gather in the market square and undress. And it was all on the pretext that the clothes were needed for the German army. So the, the, uh, the Nazis stood over the naked women, brandishing them with whips and sticks. And then they just went beyond something just pushed them beyond and suddenly a dozen women fought back and they attacked the officers scratching them with their nails and biting them with their teeth and they picked up stones and threw them and the nazis were completely shocked and ran away in a panic leaving behind the confiscated clothes and this was just one small act of resistance but there is evidence that its effect was not insignificant because we what the evidence suggests is that following this other women found the courage to fight back and there was a small surge in membership to partisan groups So during this period and until the end of the war, um, many Jewish women had become couriers. One such woman was Frunke Plotnicka and she was the middle of three daughters and she was born into a Hasidic family. She joined Freedom at 17 and became deeply committed and she was known as a deep critical thinker but somewhat socially awkward, preferring at times to be on the sidelines of the movement. However, she was an excellent career, building networks to smuggle food, obtain medical supplies and gather information. And women dominated in this role of uh, careers um, as they were less easily detected. Now, you may not know the answer to this, but uh, let's just have some fun. Any, can you guess any reason why that the women were more likely to do the career roles? Um, Or why they were less easily detected? Well, uh, I have read about such women. A combination of things. Uh, A being perceived because of gender stereotypes as not being a threat. Correct, yeah. Nazi uh, culture was classically sexist, yeah. Yeah. Also, um, charm uh, and getting around people just by the fact of like, oh, here's, an, here's, a, here's a, a flirtatious woman. Uh, so they use, they use cunning and guile. Um, I can also imagine that possibly there was a reluctance amongst some German soldiers not to search women as readily as they might search a man. There might have been those. Those aren't two of them mentioned, but that's possible. I'm not saying that that's not, it's wrong. It's mm. possible, yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm intrigued. Okay. So, um, 
One of the reasons was that the Jewish girl could Jewish girls could do a better job at appearing Polish, and this was because in Jewish families, when money was tight, families designated their sons to be sent to the Jewish schools, and their daughters would just go to the local Polish schools. Um, so the girls learned to speak Polish without an accent. They studied Polish literature, and they just simply absor- absorbed the gestures and mannerisms of the Polish people. So they could pass as Polish Catholics in a way that men couldn't. There is one other thing that um, that they didn't have the obvious body marker that the men did because the men were circumcised. Um, So the men would have this fear that if they were caught, drop your trousers and they could work it out. So women didn't have that. And so they could pass more, I don't know if they were relaxed, but they didn't have that fear of that. And finally, that women, um, it was less suspicious for women to travel during the day where men were expected to be at work. It would be more normal to see a woman traveling around during the day, maybe doing a bit of shopping and things. So this is why this role was dominated by women. And as I discussed at the top of the podcast, uh, the term courier does simplify what they did. They actually took enormous risks and none more so than Bella Hansen. Um, Bella's father died when she was six and her mother raised her and her five siblings single-handedly. Her mother was a Zionist and allowed Bella to join freedom. And when Hitler invaded, Bella was sent to Vilna where she participated in a thriving yet hungry uh, youth movement. And because Bella had Aryan looks, from the get-go she would leave the ghetto with a work group through a small passageway via the houses on the border ghetto and she'd tear off her Jewish patch, head to the market and buy food and medicines for her friends. So you can see how this is a kind of simple role, right? But actually saved lives because people were starving. Yeah, I mean, if you've if you've ever had any dealings with officialdom, you know how nerve-wracking that can be. And that's before you even have the idea that if they suss you out, you're going to be taken away and you're going to have your teeth pulled out tortured uh, and possibly executed so uh, for me personally huge respect because it must have been absolutely terrifying yeah and and you you're saying about the men that 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 fear that actually you could be found out quite easily well people can smell fear they can sense it exactly yeah yeah that that, that's put it in a much better way than i was so um, massive respect to to these women massive yeah so there was a mass slaughter of Jewish people in a town called Ponnery, um, in the forest outside Vilna. And Freedom began to organise uh, a stronger resistance following that event. Um, they began actively seeking uh, non-Jewish looking girls who could work as couriers between the ghettos. Um, Bella already had experience of going out as Aryan, so she volunteered for this role. And her job was to smuggle bulletins, money and weapons. So she also needed a pay job. So she went to the employment office and the clerk there asked her whether she spoke German. And since Yiddish is so close, she said yes. So the clerk told her that he had a job for her, which is, this is amazing, as a translator in the Gestapo office. Can you imagine? Uh, You know, the the risk was insane, but Bella also knew the position could help the resistance in an extraordinary way, so she took it. 
and through her work she secured a special pass so she can move freely freely in and out of the ghetto and she obtained fake papers for comrades and moved stolen weapons. However, you mentioned before about what the consequences of what would happen if, if you were caught and sadly Bella was eventually caught. She was imprisoned and tortured for four months before being deported to Auschwitz. And the whole time, she never gave away her Jewish identity. So she's posing as Catholic. Um, because she knew if, if they knew she was Jewish, then her treatment would be far worse. Yet constantly living with this fake identity took an enormous mental toll. And she lived in constant fear that she may betray herself by shouting out in Yiddish in her sleep. So I want to move on now to the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Um, do you know much about this event? Yeah, I do know a bit. Um, if I'm right, I think there was one in the Jewish ghetto and there was a general one. Um, and both of them, sadly, came to um, a very sad end. And I've been to the Warsaw Uprising Museum, but that tends to deal more with the, the, the general Warsaw Uprising. And my understanding, very very briefly, is it, is it the ZOB? That's it. Uh, yeah. yeah. Do you pronounce, because I'm not sure if it's pronounced Zob or Z-O-B. Or the Z-O-B, yeah. We'll, call, we'll use Z-O-B in this. Yes, I, don't I am know. going to talk about that. Um, and I'm going to talk about this from the perspective um, of the youth groups. Um, so it all started when 52,000 Jews were deported to Treblinka from the Warsaw Ghetto. Um, and the freedom members met with the community leaders to discuss a response. And the young people proposed attacking the Jewish police officers who weren't armed. Um, they had these clubs, but they didn't have any guns. Um, and they also wanted to incite a mass demonstration. But the leaders warned them not to react hastily or upset the Germans, cautioning that the murder of thousands of Jews could be on the young comrades' heads. Um, but in the face of such mass killing, the youth movement felt the adults were just being outrageously overcautious. And so they decided to establish their own force, which translates into English as the Jewish Fighting Organization, but is commonly known in Poland, as you said, the, the ZOB. Um, the only issue was that they had no money, no weapons and no military experience. So not off to a great start. Um so Frumka and a few of the other courier girls were sent over to the Aryan side to forge ties and procure weapons. Meanwhile, Zivia um, was the only elected woman leader uh, joined the fighting group. And she learned to use a firearm and trained to be on guard duty. She also cooked, laundered and was responsible for maintaining the young fighters' optimism and spirit. So while they were waiting for the weapons, they launched a propaganda campaign in the ghetto and they put up posters and billboards and um, proclaiming that deportation to Treblinka meant certain death. Uh, they urged elders to hide and the youth to defend themselves. And they had this slogan, which was, quote, it is better to be shot in the ghetto than die in Treblinka. And then one night they murdered the Jewish police chief and used an incendiary device to set fire to a house and this is basically the point that's considered that the Jewish uprising began. The ZOB knew that they had to form alliances with other resistance groups because they, they basically had uh, they had the, the fighting spirit but no resources and there were three groups that were key in this. So there was the Polish Home Army, 
Um, the problem with that was that um, they were affiliated to the right-wing government in exile in London that had anti-Semitic leadership. So the Home Army basically weren't going to be interested in affiliating with them. Then there was the People's Army, um, and they were affiliated with the Communist Party. Now, they were probably willing to cooperate with anyone who wanted to bring the Nazis down. Um, However, the downside of them was that they had less resources. Um, And then the third group was the Bund, which was the most progressive of the Jewish political parties. And so the ZOB approached them and they agreed to collaborate. And this new alliance um, helped to change the mind of the Home Army, um, uh, who eventually agreed to send weapons and instructions on how to make explosives. So when I read this, What really struck me is we're talking about teenagers here and I just thought this is really shrewd political manoeuvring and I I just wondered what's your thoughts on that? Well, funnily enough, Esther, one of the next podcasts is going to be about Europe and the aftermath of World War II Ah, and you've touched already on the schisms and the manoeuvring and Mm -hmm. and there are people that are genuinely thinking about the here and now there are people that are looking already towards the end of the war and and who are we best in bed with rather than what's that's what's morally right um so it's an incredibly complex and nuanced and there's there's the best and worst of of human people of human nature in there but I'm always struck when I see the pictures of these people, of how young they are, and I I can't imagine the tremendous responsibility of the decisions that they had to take when they were still really enjoying, should have been enjoying their youth, and the consequences of, of, of getting it wrong, and the constant threat of being informed upon and literally every it's interesting when you see the photographs and they're smiling for the camera and then for all you know the next day they're dead yeah yeah and I think that thing about being informed upon is probably a very real risk if you're dealing with a group who are known to be anti-semitic right yeah but it was a very successful strategy and they were able to proceed with their organizing Um, Now, they knew, and I'm not quite sure how they knew this, but they knew when the next planned deportations were going to take place. So they started gearing up for that. And Zivia was put in charge of one of the fighting groups leading 40 men and women. And they had four hand grenades, four shotguns between them. And the rest was basically a bunch of iron pipes and sticks and homemade firebombs. But they decided that they were just going to fight to the death and uh, they eagerly awaited the Nazis' arrival so they could go down with honour. There was there was this really strong theme. It's like, um, you know, is it the Zapatistas who say, I'd rather... Um, Die on my feet than on my knees. Yeah, so I think that there was that same... Um, ideology amongst the the freedom fighters oh sorry no the, the zob they set themselves up that when they were all in a room and when the door flung open a group of germans burst in and two comrades pretended to be reading a book and the germans rushed by them and entered a room where zivia and the others were waiting and those pretend to be reading then jumped up and shot the germans in the back 
and the rest were hiding in wardrobes and they all leapt out and fought with whatever arms they had. The Germans who survived were so shocked uh, by this that they just beat a hasty retreat. Um, and I mean, you you say that the uprising had a sad end, but actually, at this point, they're really jubilant because they just thought that they were going to be killed, um, and they won. So there's this moment here of um, uh, of absolute celebration. Uh, but this is only the start. The battle continued for many days with many Nazis killed and eventually the ZOB ran out of ammunition and were forced into hiding. But both the Poles and the Jewish masses considered this to be a ZOB uh, victory. Um, the ghetto was becoming a united fighting post and this was considered the golden age of the Warsaw Ghetto. And actually the Home Army had been so impressed with this mini uprising that it encouraged them to provide more help and they um, upped their four guns to 50 uh, and also 50 grenades and several kilos of explosives into the ghetto. And the ZOB created workshops and a lab to make primitive bombs and Molotov cocktails. The focus now was on training um, more fighters. Then on the 19th of April 1943, on the eve of Passover, the police and SS auxiliary forces entered the ghetto. So the plan this time was basically to completely clear the place within three days. And as the sun rose, Zivia saw the German forces advancing, 2,000 soldiers, Panzer tanks and machine guns. The Germans sang as they marched because they thought this was going to be an easy final coup. And then there was a thundering blast and the mines that the ZOB had planted under the streets went off, sending bodies flying into the air. Now Zivia and her comrades threw hand grenades and bombs down onto the Nazis who scattered. The Jewish fighters chased them down with guns. More Molotov cocktails and Nazis flew like flies and the joy of revenge was intoxicating. But the fight was not over. Germans sent in tanks, which the fighters hurled grenades at and destroyed. They sent in planes, which dropped bombs, setting the streets on fire. And the, a courier girl called Renia, um, she later wrote uh, in her autobiography, quote, It seemed not merely that some Jews were fighting the Germans, but that two entire countries were at battle. Which when you consider how disadvantaged the Jews were is just extraordinary. But sadly, the following days of fighting became more difficult as German artillery on the Aryan side bombarded them. On the fifth day, they were running into serious trouble. And part of the problem was that they just simply hadn't expected to survive, so had not planned an escape route or survival strategy. So they um, had no hideout and barely any food and the ghettos burning around them. However, they found shelter in some underground bunkers that had been created by thieves of the Jewish underground. Um, however, they'd been designed for a few dozen criminals and now they were housing 300 resistance fighters. After around 10 days in these cramped, desperate conditions with barely any food and water, they decided they had to find a way to leave for the Aryan side. So they broke into two groups and the first group set off crawling through a network of tunnels and sewers and finally emerging for a manhole where a truck uh, was waiting for them and they took them into the city. I'm not 
the book isn't clear here actually who organized this but i'm assuming it was the courier girls and then the second group set off and this was the remaining 20 people but unfortunately they when they arrived at the manhole the nazis had discovered their escape route and they were ambushed so over 100 women fought in the warsaw ghetto uprising um, and in a Nazi inner circle meeting, it was reported that the battle was surprisingly tough and the, the Jewish girls were given a special mention um, for the fact that they particularly fought to the bitter end. So after fleeing the ghetto, those that survived um, were, went into the forest and joined the partisans. Um, and this was no easy task, especially for the women. Um, most of the partisan groups did not accept Jews out of nationalism or anti-Semitism, or simply that they did not believe that they could fight. Also, the Jews who did arrive had no weapons and were in severe physical or mental distress, so they were seen as a burden. And the women were especially considered non-combat material, and if they were offered a role, it would usually be cooking or nursing. The woods were also a very dangerous place full of spies, Nazi collaborators and bandits and the partisans themselves could be violent and many women were raped. So despite this slightly desperate situation, 30,000 Jews did join the partisans, although many disguised their identity when doing so. And 10% of those were women. And this includes a woman called Faye Shulman. And she had been a photographer on the eastern border town of Lenin. Faye had escaped the mass shooting of 1,850 Jews, including her entire family. Um, she begged the partisan commander to let her join, which he eventually agreed to. Knowing her father had been a doctor, uh, she was assigned to nursing duties, and, but she would actually end up performing open-air surgeries on operating tables made of branches. She also assisted in combat, uh, raiding her hometown in vengeance. Um, there were also partisan units that were made up entirely of Jews, and they sheltered refugees and committed acts of sabotage. And there were more women in these groups, um, with some going out on missions with armed guards. And this included Ruska Korczek, a who was known as a shy outsider, um, who prior to the war had spent most of her time in libraries. But uh, come the war, that all changed. And she ended up on a sabotage mission, which involved a 40-mile hike to blow up a munitions train. Um, 50 Nazis were killed as a result of this mission and a storehouse of German weapons were destroyed. And I've got a little quote from the book, Light of Days, here that I just want to read. Ruska and the men set out early evening in the freezing cold, each one carrying a gun and two grenades. Tony Ruska insisted on taking her turn carrying the mine, which weighed more than 50 pounds, which is nearly 23 kilos, or the weight of an average seven-year-old. Uh, they crossed frozen paths to a river where water flowed just under the surface. The unit had to traverse with all their ammunition by inching along a log. Ruska fell in. She caught the log and hurled herself up even though her legs were numb and heavy. The commander saw her soaking wet and ordered her back to the camp so she wouldn't freeze to death. But she insisted on staying and she said, you will have to put a bullet in my head to keep me from this mission. So what do you make of that? Well, it's phenomenal, isn't it? The, the 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 things that people suffered and the experiences they they went through. I mean, so many things were going through my mind, Esther. Um, the um, 
the the idea that when you push people to a certain point when they've got nothing left to lose um then they're dangerous because as as you said you know well they're going to kill us anyway so and then also the the I read a lot about World War Two, and whenever I see a politician sort of banging the old Spitfire World War Two drum, I have a little alarm bell because I've read about the factionalism, the the, the ethno nationalism is a very nasty thing, and I, I've read about how sides used each other. So, for example, De Gaulle um, been the communist as soon as the Nazis defeated the communists with a new enemy, my, you know, and those those shifting alliances. And then I don't know if you know, but the the background to this is also very it's very cynical. The general Warsaw uprising took place when the Russians um, told the Poles they were coming and they should rise up against the Nazis. And then they waited on the other side of the river in Praga, um, and they they say because it was too dangerous to cross. The river um and then the nazis put down the general warsaw uprising and then later of course when the soviets did push into warsaw um there were no poles uh, really left to form a, to, to run things and so they had instant control so i'm just thinking about when when these young people were making their alliances everything you did was fraught with risk yeah. and and how do we know that they won't double cross us yeah it must have it's, yeah, but then, blown, but, yeah. but then they had nothing. They had literally nothing left to lose, did they? And but it's interesting when you say desperate people were dangerous people that there was this divide between the elders and the young people because they were still just uh, saying. Which is interesting because that, I mean, not to such an extreme extent, but that narrative came up with the Battle of Cable Street in in our East London where there was a divide, and this is one of the reasons where I get very annoyed about people talking about the Jewish community as if we were one homogenous group that all think and did the same thing. Because even going back then, the Battle of Cable Street, there was a divide between people who said, let's just keep our heads down, and if we keep our heads down, the fascists won't notice us. And then the mostly working class um groups of Jewish people who were saying no we have to fight because if we don't fight now they you know who knows what will happen next um, and so there were groups like the Board of Deputies and the Jewish Chronicle who really did not want the Battle of Cable Street to happen and then the um, the Jewish workers and uh, in East London joined with the communists and the Irish and the Dockers um, there were some mix of people up in there um, and they said no we're going to fight back um, and they won <laughs> and it's really interesting I found out really interesting that that same com- kind of that same conversation with at a much higher level of risk and fallout also happened in the Warsaw ghetto I thought that was quite interesting Hannah Arendt got into trouble didn't she with Eichmann in Jerusalem when she touched on these complexities um, and people didn't want to hear that it was more complex than, than, you know, goodies and baddies. But I, personally, if I try and empathise, I can't put myself in in the shoes of all those people because there were, it's, it's, you know, Neville Chamberlain now, history shows that Neville Chamberlain, um, Hitler didn't stop. But, you know, if he had stopped, I think a lot of people would say, well, good old Neville, because we didn't want to go to war for a few... Didn't he say a Czechoslovakia, people far away of of whose people we know little? And now, of course, you'd go like, oh, Neville, it was, you know, but 
it's hard if, if someone if someone came to you and said, guys, if we just keep our heads down, right, ten people are gonna are gonna be killed, you know, in the next year. If we if we start a war, everyone's gonna die. I mean, you can feel the power of the argument, and I'm just incredibly glad that I didn't have to make the decisions that these <laughs> yeah, people that's did. True. That's true. Finally, I want to share some stories about uprisings in concentration camps, including Auschwitz. And one of these stories involves two sisters called Esther and Anna Heilman. So Anna and Esther were from upper middle class Warsaw family and they had grown up in a life of privilege, but had a revolutionary spirit. Uh, Anna had been involved in the Young Guard in the ghetto, which was another socialist Zionist uh, youth movement. When she heard about the planned uprising in Auschwitz, she was eager to be involved. News came that when the inmates heard a password, they should attack from the inside. So they began collecting materials and they got whatever they could, matches, gasoline, heavy objects. They obtained keys for the farm tool shed from which they took rakes and hose and a pair of shears. Um, And all these were passed uh, through the camp through hollowed out bread. Around 30 women, including Esther and Anna, stole gunpowder from the munitions factory that they were working in. Then on the 7th of October 1944, the Jewish underground attacked. They killed a handful of soldiers and injured many more and blew up a crematorium. They cut a hole in the fence and a hundred fled, but they were all shot dead. Anna and Esther were caught and tortured. Anna was eventually released, but Esther and four other women were executed. In her last breath before the noose tightened, one yelled out in Polish, Sisters' Revenge. So they went down defiant. And just wondering what your response to those stories are. It's, it's emotional stuff, Esther. Mm. Um, but have you heard stories like that about these sort of uprisings in the concentration? Because my sort of understanding or the stories that I've heard about the concentration camps, or like when someone says... Jewish concentration camps you just think of those images of the striped pajamas and emaciated faces and and being saved by the British uh that's you know uh Belson is a story that we heard about and apparently Belson wasn't one of the worst camps it was just the ones that the British liberated and so like the story of the Jews in the concentration camps was just like they starved, they died, and then they were saved by the British and, and other people, obviously. Um, so to hear these stories, that they were fighting back, they were uprising, and this wasn't the only one, there were many more as well. It's just like, for me, it just puts that whole story in a completely different context, and it is awful and sad, but I just kind of like, well, you know, they fought back and they fought to the end, and revenge sisters, and I, I don't know, not inspiring is not the right word, but it's just... Um, it's, it gives agency to the people who previously were just victims, you know? Uh, well, I had heard these stories, so I've actually tour guided around some of the camps. Oh, wow, okay. Um, or tour directed, should I say. I brought people then, and we've had an expert guide, and so I'd had heard such stories, and of course, is it Maximilian Kolber is on the front of Westminster Abbey as a 20th century martyr, the guy that said, um, take this guy, no, take me, don't, don't kill this guy. But... I'm, I've seen the places where the place in Auschwitz, yeah, where prisoners who rebelled were executed, and then some of them did, in their last breath, shout out, um, you know, something in a dis. I know, I know what you mean. It's it's cold comfort, but it's it's kind of inspiring to see that they they could t- take their life, but they couldn't 
take their their soul and control their brain. And it's a little bit like makes you think of Viktor Frankl. And he's like, well, you can do these things to me, but what's in here is mine, and you'll never take that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. So this is for me a very different version of the women at war story and indeed the holocaust stories these women have agency and acted with ferocity and fortitude and the stories mostly come from their memoirs which were not written asking for pity but celebrating active valor Uh, the victories may have been tiny but the resistant effort was larger and more organized than I certainly realise, and I'm sure many other people. And the author, Judy Battilian, says, uh, quote, our collective memory has been shaped by an overarching resistance to resistance. I rather like that. So why? Why has it been like this? So it's complicated, but there are a few key reasons that I just want to go into. So after the war, many of the women ended up in Israel um, and some were given a platform to speak. However, some are highly critical of Yeshuv, which is the old school Israeli Jews, as they were accused of being passive and not supporting the Jews in Europe. As a result, the speaker's words were edited. So a dichotomy emerged created by Israeli politicians between Israeli-born Jews and European Jews. And the Israeli Jews, um, so this uh, said that the Israeli Jews were the strong next wave, while the European Jews were physically weak, naive and passive. The narrative of Jewish resistance in Europe was erased in order to reinforce this negative stereotype. So that was what was happening in Israel. And meanwhile, another large community of Jews had a different problem. So in the immediate aftermath of the war, Jews in the US didn't want to discuss the Holocaust because of fear, guilt and a desire to assimilate. By the 1960s, the Jewish American community was more established, but there was still hesitancy in how and when to talk about the Holocaust. Writing about resistance was seen as problematic as it might present it as being not that bad. It was criticised for giving resistors agency, implying that survival was more than luck, judging those who did not take up arms as ultimately victim-blaming. And then there is also the role that gender plays in almost all historical narratives. The Courier Girls wrote their memoirs fairly soon after the war. After they were published, some major histories were written by men which did not include their stories. The women resistance fighters literally disappeared from the Holocaust historical narratives. And then finally, there is the individual experiences of survivors. Many women did not want to talk about their experiences because of survivor guilt. Others felt estranged from the close-knit survivors' communities in which, according to some, there was a hierarchy of suffering. So after reading all these stories and discovering what happened to the stories in the aftermath, I was interested in actually that they were quite different to the enslaved people, because if you remember at the top... I was very inspired to do this because I felt that it was very similar to what I was hearing about the enslaved people and that how we talk about enslaved people as lacking agency and that we need to change that narrative. But actually, this seems quite different. Um, There seems to be that the stories of the Jewish Holocaust are caught up within these divides that have actually made them quite difficult to tell and I'm just wondering what your thoughts on on that after hearing all this is. Well funnily enough I've been reading a book that touches on this by Keith Lowe and he talks about um, 
how myth, and I'm just going to caveat what I say by saying that I think this applies to all people in all countries of all ethnicities because human beings are human beings and there are political agendas and there are stories that help agendas get furthered and there are stories that help agendas that, that, that block agendas and you you just have to look at political arguments today to see people who can't even this this binary polarization of those guys over there are all bad we're all good um and on on the gender front to and, and I'm not for a moment obviously comparing Nazis with with Jewish resistance fighters but I can see how in that especially in that post-war moment when everything's to play for and all kinds of people have a vision of who should be in charge of the new world and they're all making a play for power um you can see how how narratives um could be shaped and 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 used and a Polish academic a couple of years ago said to me that if you go to the Warsaw Uprising Museum, she said you're supposed to come out with this massive sympathy for Poland uh, because the current government will use that sort of to, to, to convert into nationalism to get you to get behind programs which you know you if you were feeling less emotive you might say, well actually I'm not I'm not really it's it's, it's populism. And on the gender front, well uh, here in the UK I know that I have read that the women, it was problematic for the women who'd experienced sexual freedom and gone to work in the factories. The men came back and they wanted things to revert to traditional gender roles. But these women had changed, grown, developed autonomy. And so uh, you can imagine that's, that's that would be problematical for you've gone away five years later, you come back and your your partner does not fit the um, with you anymore. And so I can imagine... The, the complexities and the nuances and the and of course then we've got PTSD yeah 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 I mean I just can I just go back to something about these people though I, yeah. I sometimes when I'm reading this I'm, I'm think about how they lived these people were doing these incredible acts of resistance sometimes on something like 700 calories a day yeah it's a sandwich and a half yeah and, and like and, how does your brain even properly function on yeah. that yeah and and you know today well, I, I think I'm quite I'm soft. I, I like to go out have a decent breakfast. Yeah. People fighting Nazis <laughs> on on less than a thousand calories yeah. a day and making life or death decisions. It's incredible. I think it's a bit like um, athletes have talked about how there's some stories of athletes who run with pulled tendons and finished a race despite, you know, not shouldn't have been able to stand up and that, like, the body just sort of takes over and when you've got this strong desire. And I wonder if it's something like that. It's just something else just kicks in in the human spirit that just keeps you going somehow. And, and for them, it was just survival, I guess. Mm. But um, it's... I, I, I found this book just full of really amazing and inspiring stories and I, I just uh, really glad that I've now discovered this part of my heritage <laughs> um, and uh, yeah just again think outside of those normal stories that we're normally told about these big events that's that's what I'm left with <laughs>